This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. Well, Blair and his team from Sands & Associates have a really great segment here. It's the 10 do's and don'ts to help you better manage your debt and avoid some of the common pitfalls that everyone experiences when it comes to borrowing. So, Blair, I know you talk to people all over the province every day who are seeking debt help. What kind of situations usually lead folks to you? You know, Elaine, for the most part, it's the unexpected. You know, a lot of people, they're generally doing just fine. They might have a little bit of debt, but they feel okay. They're managing it. They're making the minimum payments. But then something happens. You know, it's typically the life events. It could be a loss of income. It could be an illness or an injury um, or a relationship ending where you've got to reestablish perhaps two households from one before. Uh, You know, those types of life events, you know, most folks are dealing without having significant savings, without having an emergency fund. So when there's a shock to the system, it can really put people into a tough spot. And I'm excited for today because we're going to go through 10 really key do's and don'ts. We're going to get them done relatively quickly, but hopefully give a lot of value to the listeners here. Uh, And let's jump in. Okay. So number one, what's the number one thing that people should pay attention to? You know, I think the first thing is a do, and it's be careful who you take debt advice from. And, you know, many, many of us have really well-meaning, well-intentioned friends, family members, you know, maybe we know someone who's an accountant or somebody who's a lawyer, but you really have to realize um, that unless you're dealing with a licensed insolvency trustee, uh, you're not dealing with someone who can give you the best advice possible in your situation. Um, So, you know, oftentimes people come to us and they've taken the wrong actions and they've actually put themselves in the worst situation because somebody has said to them, you know, cash in this investment or, you know what, go get a co-sign loan with your parents, for example. Uh, We'll talk about why those are our problems, but the really important thing is if you're finding yourself in the midst of a debt storm, you've really got to know who you can trust, who you can go to for advice, and be very careful if you're getting advice from a lender, from a collection agent, or even, again, from somebody who's very well-intentioned but just might not have the knowledge to help you. Now, I know because this segment is with you, and or the whole show is with you, and being a licensed insolvency trustee, it really makes the most sense that you'd be the first person that uh, makes sense for a person to talk to. Absolutely right, Elaine. And that's one of the, you know, my life's challenges is trying to get people to call us sooner than they think they might need us. You know, sometimes someone will call a trustee uh, when they've already, you know, exhausted a bunch of other options, you know, perhaps delayed it and really suffered for a lot longer than they should. So if your first call is to a licensed insolvency trustee, it's a free call, it's confidential, and you're going to get the rules of the road. You're going to understand exactly what your rights and responsibilities are. And it's with knowledge comes a whole lot more calmness and a whole lot of a a better ability to make good decisions for your financial future. Now, I would think that being organized or getting your stuff organized would be really helpful in any situation, regardless of who you're talking to. 
That's right, Elaine. So that's our second one here. It's a do, and it's do be organized. And, you know, I'm not talking that you need to have spreadsheets, you know, with a ton of different tabs and macros and everything coming together to calculate your interest before the bank tells you what you owe. But as a minimum, you should really be able to take inventory of each of your accounts. What are the account numbers? What's the total balance? What's the monthly payment requirements? And, you know, if even getting to that level uh, is a bit tough because sometimes people just ignore the problem for quite some time. They stop opening their mail. They just don't know where to start. Uh, Where you can start is by getting a copy of your credit history report and just see, you know, does that give you a good base to start to understand your debt? Does it agree with what you think? Are there debts on there that you forgot that you owed? Are there inaccuracies? But you've got to get organized just so you know what kind of a problem that you're tackling. Um, And, you know, if you need help doing that, again, if you reach out to a trustee, we can tell you, here's how you pull your credit. Um, But we've got no greater sources of information than you. It's something the individual uh, is really just going to have to sit down and, and just start on a blank sheet of paper writing out that basic information. And I would think, uh, I mean, we know that we've been doing this show long enough that using credit, credit cards, that kind of thing is, is often the, the, the sort of the vehicle that gets some folks into trouble. So what do you do about that? What do you do with your credit when you're seeking this kind of help? Yeah, this one's a don't, and the don't is don't keep using your credit. So there's the old adage, if you find yourself in a hole, what's the first thing you should do? And it's stop digging. So a lot of folks, when they actually stop using their credit, they start to realize, oh my God, I'm overspending on a monthly basis. And I had no idea because I was just, you know, paying off this balance with the other card. I had no idea I was actually, my budget needed an adjustment. So what I suggest people to do is, you know, put the credit away, even just for a month or two, stop using it, get a sense of your monthly budget. Uh, You're really not going to be able to see how you're going to be able to solve the problem if you keep going further and further into debt. And if you're in that situation that you can't figure it out, a licensed insolvency trustee sounds like the very best first step in that case because you need some kind of help and you need to be able to trust that help. Absolutely. One of the first things we do in a meeting is we sit down and we just start to build up a very basic budget. You know, what's your paycheck? Is it twice a month? Okay. What's your rent? How what's that as a percentage of your income? Um, you know, by looking at that budget and then we can see, you know, is, are you really having a problem because your credit's just too large and all the interest and the payments are putting you behind? Or is it the case you've got to make some hard decisions about where you can cut expenses or increase income to get yourself back into financial solvency? Now, what about savings? I know that um, it just seems like common sense or a natural thing for people to do to, you know, look at their savings and say, okay, I, I, in order to get out of this situation, maybe this is what I should do. Look at my savings, look at my RRSPs, and that's often not the best solution at that point. Yeah, I would say it's never the best solution is to start to cash in your RRSPs to pay your debt. So this is our fourth, and it's a do, and it's do keep your RRSPs intact. Uh, it's over 10 years ago now the federal government changed the laws to protect RRSPs, so they're the same now as a company pension plan. If you have to deal with your debts in either a bankruptcy or a consumer proposal, you're going to keep your company pension plan because that's right and just. You've worked your whole life. You deserve to have those retirement benefits. RRSPs are treated exactly the same, but the exception is you you can't go and cash in your pension plan to pay your debts, but you absolutely can do that to pay. You can cash in your RRSPs, and that almost always puts people in a worse position. They're hit with a tax bill right away. It's usually not enough to solve the debt problem completely. And then where is that money when they need it for retirement? It's gone. So anybody right. that's considering cashing in your RRSPs, that's one of the most important pieces of guidance I can give. I've never seen a situation where that was the right decision. Okay, and I really good for people to remember that. 
Um, I, I like this fifth one because it really needs an explanation. Don't mistake payments for progress. Yeah, so there's the, the old adage, you know, just because you're doing something, are you really doing anything? Are you making progress? Um, and I'm a little bit cynical sometimes, but, you know, I believe it, it, it's far too comfortable to just continue making the minimum payments on your debts, and all that does is put you further and further into debt. Often, you know, a $6,000 debt can keep you in debt for 40 years if it's on a department store credit card with 29% interest. Even a $1,000 debt can take 10 years to pay off. So if, if you think you're doing well because, oh yeah, I honor all my minimums every month, but you don't look at the statements to say, well, you're on the 70-year payment plan, you've mistaken action for progress, and you really need to focus on what's going to get you out of debt. What about when it comes to filing for your the taxes, the Canada Revenue Agency? How do we deal with that? Is there sort of a, a rule of thumb there? Well, the rule of thumb is to file. Even if you owe money, it's very important that you file your taxes every year. It's really part of your civic duty. And oddly enough, owing CRA money is not as bad of a situation as having a bunch of unfiled tax years. CRA treats that as a worse situation because you're not fulfilling your obligations. Um, it also could be the case you might not get benefits you're entitled to. If you're going to try to apply for credit, they usually need to see your tax returns uh, to assess your income. So you really need to get your tax filings up to date. Um, CRA, I don't compliment them that much, but they've done an exceptional job in giving people online access to all of the tax documents that you might need to file your return. So even if you have nothing, you can get online access through CRA, probably get enough to get yourself caught up for a number of tax years, even without paying an accountant to do so. And, and does that mean if you owe CRA that it still makes sense to do that? Absolutely, especially okay. I would say if, if you owe CRA, because you know that balance might even go down if you file the unfiled years you know, based on some credits, uh, or even Got if it, it goes up, you can bet CRA probably knows more about you than you think. They're able to get your bank records without you even knowing about it. So there's really no benefit of you trying you know, to, to stay off CRA's radar. It's better to file every year, and then you know, that might trigger you to say, okay, I've got this tax liability, let me deal with that with all of my other debts. And if you're going to deal with a trustee, part of the trustee's job is to help you get caught up on your taxes so that we deal with the entire debt situation. Got it. Now, you sort of touched on this earlier in the segment about um, looking to friends or family. Uh, and I, let's go over that one a little with a little in a little more depth, because it's super important not to do that. Yeah, it's, so this is our seventh here, uh, is don't borrow from friends and family or have them co-sign debts. So I know it can be appealing, you know, maybe a child gets into trouble and the parents really want to help them by pay off the debt or, or co-signing a loan. What you need to realize is if you co-sign a loan, you're agreeing to pay 100% of that debt plus interest. It's not a 50-50 liability. Uh, and if you've co-signed a loan for someone, I have people in my office where I would love to be able to do a consumer proposal for them. We'll pay back, you know, a third of the debt, give them a new, new lease on life. But if a parent or a family member has co-signed that debt, they're really held back from proceeding because they know if they do that proposal, the creditor can go to the co-signer to get all the amounts that are unpaid and they don't want to put somebody in a tough situation. So it adds a whole emotional level to what's a financial matter uh, and it's typically a bad idea. You know, if family wants to help you out, what they should do is tell you, okay, get some good advice and if you end up doing a proposal, maybe we can help you with making some payments on that, but nothing that incurs direct liability from another person, a friend or a family member is generally a good idea. Yeah. And I like this. I like number eight. And it's a don't. Don't pay for that advice. And can you explain that one? 
Yeah, this one's pretty simple. Just don't do it. <laughs> you know, if somebody's asking you for money to help you figure out your financial options when it comes to debt, you're probably being taken advantage of. There's no cost to sit down with a licensed insolvency trustee. You know, I typically meet with clients three or four times before we ever execute any formal filings. And a lot of people, after a couple of meetings, they actually don't need my help. And that's just fine. I can refer them to other resources or give them some tools. But you should not be paying anything. You're already in a tough financial situation. If someone wants an upfront fee, uh, you should do your research and figure out what you you're getting for it. And usually the answer is you're not getting much that you wouldn't get for free with a trustee. Got it. And um, I like I like your number nine, do value your personal well-being more than your credit score. That's right. So any of our longtime listeners will know that, you know, we subscribe to the proposition here that a credit rating is a terrible barometer of your overall financial health. It's a great measure of how much money you actually make the banks every month because you're paying your interest. But a lot of the behaviors that drive a great credit rating are actually the opposite of what you should do to be getting out of debt. Um, so keep in mind, your credit rating can change over time. It's only important at certain points, maybe if you want to buy a house or a car. And if you're building towards those milestones, if you're in debt, it's really difficult for you to save a down payment for a house, you got to deal with that problem first. So preserving your credit rating, usually not the right idea to have overall financial health in the future if you're in debt. And just hit on number 10, and then we'll wrap up this segment. And it's a good one. I'm so thrilled we got through all 10, and it's don't delay seeking help. You know, Elaine, quite simply, I've been doing this work over 13 years now. I've never had somebody say they regret seeking help. I've had almost everybody say they regret suffering, taking so long to reach out for help. So really don't delay if you're suffering. There is help available to get you back on track. Here's the key, and this is the good information for you, to learn about your debt options. And that's really the key here, to, to figure out the best, uh, the best route to take. Connect with a licensed insolvency trustee in one of the Sands & Associates local BC offices. Visit the website, sands-trustee.com, or better yet, call their toll-free number, 1-800-661-3030 today. We're going to talk about risky debt cycles. And this is going to be an interesting uh, segment because we're specifically talking about payday loans and the amount of risk that's out there uh, around payday loans. Uh, it's so interesting because it, when, when it comes to alternative borrowing, lots of debt experts caution payday loans are among the riskiest types of debts to have. And, and yet they seem, Blair, that they're so much more available than they ever were before. Uh, the, the offices and the places that you can go to to uh, do payday loans um, are considerable, right? I mean, it seems like it's a growing industry to me. Oh, yes, Elaine. There's, there's just tons, whether it's brick and mortar, um, places popping up all the time, you know, some very you know, large national banners, some, you know, very small regional, maybe just a single location or two. Uh, even online, you can find, you know, payday lenders these days. So it's, it's very easy to get into the, into this type of debt. Um, and payday loans are typically, they're a special type of debt. It's usually your last resort. So it's, it's what you go to yeah. when, you know, typically you've been turned down for a bunch of other types of debt that, you know, might have better terms. Uh, and the big challenge with payday loans uh, is that they're very addictive. So I've, I've said before, there's a crack cocaine of borrowing. Um, you, you get one, you need a second, you need a third. I see people with 10 to 15 different payday loans moving money around crazily each month, just trying to keep all the balls in the air. Uh, so the challenges are the interest rate is so high, all the costs and the fees, that often when you have one you need to take out a second or a third to actually pay off the cost of just that first loan, and it creates a vicious cycle. So it's very, as you said, risky financing, and I'm really happy today we're going to delve into a bunch, um, you know, the numbers, the structure, how these work, uh, and hopefully give people some good insights that help them try to avoid using this type of financing. 
Okay, well, let's let's start with the actual payday loan, how it's set up, uh, and how and how it works. How, why is it you know how it becomes so risky for the borrower? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so a payday loan, so it's offered you know usually physically in store, but now online, and it's by privately owned companies. So this isn't um, you know your large banks typically. It's not a government organization. It's a private organization that just starts off to offer payday loans, and they are subject to provincial regulations. So it's a short term loan. And the regulation state, you can borrow up to $1,500. Um, the objective is a payday loan. It's meant to cover a cash shortfall for a short period. So the idea is, like the name, it's in between your paydays. You're going to pay it off in your next paycheck. Uh, and in BC, that's up to $1,500. You've got up to 62 days to pay your payday loan back. So it's not supposed to be long-term financing. Uh, and if you don't repay your payday loan, plus the interest and the fees, you face even more interest and fees. So... What about an installment loan? Is that the next piece that we want to talk about in relation to this? Because how is that different? Well, that's important for people to know. The payday lenders started off a number of years ago, and they were just payday loans. They were just the $1,500, pay it back in up to 60 days, and that was their, their bread and butter. Now, what I've seen in the last couple of years especially is just an explosion in what's called installment loans with all the big payday lenders doing this, uh, and it's typically for an amount larger than that of a payday loan. It can be much larger. I've seen ten, fifteen thousand, 15000 even $20,000 uh, installment loans, and although the cost is usually lower than that of a payday loan, they still can be very, very expensive, um, much more expensive than other costs of borrowing. Um, and just in terms of who uses payday loans, you know, it's the vast majority of Canadians luckily don't need to resort to payday loans, but there's up to 2% of Canadians uh, in recent surveys that said they're habitual payday loan borrowers. Um, and what's interesting is how this changes amongst vulnerable groups. So for low-income households, it's doubled its 4% incidence. For Indigenous peoples, it's doubled again to 8% incidence. Uh, and for single parents, 8% of single parents have used payday loans in the past year, according to a recent survey. So it can be people really at the edges of our financial system who are really have a tough time accessing financing anywhere else who are, who are being hit with the highest cost financing, unfortunately. And that's the cycle that you're talking about. You owe money, you can't get out of it, you've got to borrow more, more money to pay, and, and on and on and on and on it goes. That's exactly right. So look, can we talk about some of the charges? Like, do you actually know what, what these companies are charging these days? And, and, and then talk about why this type of borrowing uh, has such a high cost. Yes, indeed. And I'm really happy to give some concrete numbers because I think the way that payday loans are often marketed, it's not that clear that the interest rate is so high. So, you know, first off, you need to understand even accessing the money you've borrowed can sometimes have additional costs. So some payday lenders might ask you to take your loan via a prepaid card and then they charge you extra cost to activate it and use the card. So setting that aside, which I think is just quite distasteful, but I'm sure there's some objective of saying, well, this is easy access, but I don't just give the cash is my opinion. But putting that that aside, let's talk about the borrowing cost. So each province and territory has some different rules and restrictions. But in BC, the maximum fee for borrowing a two-week $100 loan is $15. Okay, so it doesn't sound like a lot. And that's what you see advertised all the time is a loan is $100. uh, Sorry, $15 on $100. Uh, Okay, sounds high, but... Uh, if you think the maximum legal interest rate in Canada is 60%, so in the criminal code of Canada, there can be no interest rate charged higher than 60%. A credit card is usually in the range of, you know, 12, maybe to 19 to 29%, somewhere in that range. If you actually do the math on a two-week payday loan, that's $15 on 100, that's 400% interest. So 
six times higher, six and a half times higher than the maximum allowed by law is what you're actually paying on a small payday loan. And maybe $15 doesn't sound so bad, but if you actually look through an example, and this is provided by the government of BC, they're actively trying to encourage people to look at all of their options before they borrow from a payday lender. If you borrow $300 with a payday loan, within 14 days, you're paying back $345. And as we've calculated, you know, that's about 391% interest, so quite high. Um, if you actually used a line of credit, and let's say the line of credit had a $5 admin fee and a 7% rate, instead of $345, you're at $305. So about one-ninth the interest charge. Uh, if you used your overdraft, so sometimes people are just scared of you know approaching their bank for an overdraft or want to stay out of it all the time, it might be a $5 fee and maybe 19% interest, so you're at $307, still a whole lot less than $345 for a payday loan. And even a credit card, if you had to do this, which you definitely don't recommend, but if you had to borrow on your credit card, let's say there's a small fee of 5 bucks to access the funds and a 21% interest rate, you're still at $307. So the very expensive credit card cash advance is going to cost you about 7 bucks. The payday loan is still going to cost you $45. So it's so significant, so much more expensive than other sources of financing. It's easy to see how that can be a cycle that you're paying back the second loan and then you're left short because you paid all this high interest. So you need a, another loan and then you pay that back and you need a further loan. So again, the cycle of payday loans is something I see just about every day. And it's just the whole idea of just don't start with one because it's very difficult to just end with one. And I totally understand what you're saying when you, when you, when you give the other examples in terms of a line of credit or overdraft protection. The average person just doesn't even think about those things because it's a bank oriented thing. I would, I would think that's why I, I wouldn't think of that. I think, oh, well, the guy's on the corner. He, there's his store or he sent me an email or whatever. That's got to be easier than having to go to a bank and ask that question. Well, and that's what the, the niche is, the, the value to the payday lender industry is this is providing access to credit to those who might be underbanked, so to speak, or don't have a great relationship with their bank, or maybe don't even have a, a bank account in some cases. Um, so, you know, a payday lender is going to give you access to funds, but it's at such a significant cost that we really encourage people to explore every other alternative first. Um, you know, even if your payday loan is because you're going to be late for your rent, it might be worth talking to your landlord. And, you know, if you do it in the right, respectful way and have a good plan that you could execute on, you might have saved yourself all of that hassle and just you know pay the rent a little bit late that month uh, you do need to understand that you have rights when you take out a payday loan so if you've just signed one recently and are concerned about it you've got two full business days where you can cancel the loan and not pay any penalties um, and you always have the right to repay the loan early without paying any additional penalties so those are a couple of your outs there uh, but a lot of people again they're, they're just trapped in that cycle of the high cost. I want to mention, too, uh, if you're in this situation and you want to take some action, go see somebody from Sands & Associates. Go see Blair, uh, and they have offices all over the province. Uh, 1-800-661-3030 is the website, or is the phone number, and the website address is sands-trustee.com. And just get some good, free information on steps to take, and maybe they can give you a hand with this. So beyond the expense of basic costs, there are some areas uh, of caution that you think it's really important for people to know about when it comes to this time, this kind of borrowing, Blair. 
Yeah, a couple of things to highlight right off the top is be very careful with online payday lenders. So a lot of them aren't licensed. Uh, they will not follow provincial rules or may not um, in your jurisdiction. So the things we talked about, the two-day right to cancel and pay things off early, if you're borrowing from an online lender, that could be tough to get them held accountable to BC law. And if they're located outside of Canada, it could be just impossible to have anything you know judicially set in Canada that's going to be binding on them. So just be very careful if it's an online lender. Um, also be careful that sometimes what you think you're doing online, applying for a loan, uh, you're actually just giving your money to what's called a lead generation website. So you put in all your information, what you're looking for, uh, and then they're not going to actually give you the loan, but they're going to sell your information to a bunch of other providers who then might start following up with you with unsolicited offers, calls, maybe even harassment, uh, where you end up with not the best deal, but just the one that, you know, kind of screamed the loudest in your in your ear uh, and made you just want, you want them to go away. Uh, you need to be careful, too, about upfront fees. So it's illegal for a company to request that you pay an upfront fee to obtain your loan. Um, so the Financial Consumer Agency of Canada, um, they actually said this on, on their website, and I quote it, uh, is don't fall for promises that you'll get a loan regardless of your credit problems. If you have poor credit or haven't established good credit history yet, it's unlikely that anyone will lend you money without charging large fees. So the whole idea of it seems too good to be true, you know, great loans, low rates, no credit, doesn't, doesn't matter. Uh, generally, it is too good to be true, uh, and you'll be cautious about that. And, you know, finally, you can always check with Consumer Protection BC to verify if a payday lender actually holds a license in the province. So if you do end up needing to take this step to take a payday loan, at least make sure they're licensed so that you do have some recourse through Consumer Protection BC. We've just got about a minute left, Blair, and I know this is a large question for a short amount of time, but what are some of the other real warning signs that might signal it's time for somebody to get some good advice and to get out of this cycle? I mean, is it even possible? It feels pretty dire. No, it's absolutely possible to get out of this cycle. I think, you know, a big warning sign, if you're habitually using payday loans, that's probably the number one warning sign. It means if something is not going according to plan, if you're always paying, you know, close to this 400% interest rate on some funds, uh, you should sit down with a professional to figure out, well, what's the root cause of this? Is it because all of your other debts are so high, you're not left with enough money to get yourself by, and you have to resort to payday loans to, to fill the gap? Um, you know, that's a big warning sign, just even having a single payday loan, let alone three, four, five or more. If you're carrying multiple, you definitely should be phoning us up, have a chat, and we'll, we'll try to get, get it to a point where you don't need to use payday loans. But the biggest warning signs that we see just in general is if you're stuck in a cycle of just making minimum payments on your debts. So you've got some debts, they don't seem to go down each each month, but you make all your money to minimum payments and you can't do any more than that. That's when you need some advice from a licensed insolvency trustee to stop that cycle, to freeze the interest, to get you out of debt, and you can get back in control of your life. I'll give you the website one more time, sands-trustee.com, or give them a call, 1-800-661-3030. Set up that first consultation. You're listening to Dollars and Cents with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates, helping you get out of debt. So this segment is all about student debt. Whether you're looking for expert advice on paying off student debt or struggling with student loans that have become unmanageable, or you know someone who is, or they're a part of your family, Blair's going to share some very professional insights and tips on dealing with student debt. So Blair, is it common that people coming, coming to a licensed insolvency trustee for help with student loans? It just seems crazy to me or so unfortunate that that is the case but i have a feeling it is 
Yeah, it's more common than you would think, Elaine. You know, it's definitely not the number one um, type of debt that, that people owe. You know, by far, that that's credit cards. Uh, but it's for a certain segment of the individuals that come to see us. You know, this can be a, just a completely crippling um, obligation if they finish school and just aren't earning an income that's commensurate to allow them to pay down the debt. Or sometimes if they weren't able to finish school um, and didn't get the benefit of the education but have that extra debt, um, you know, st- attached to them that they've got to deal with. You know, in terms of the size of student debt in Canada, we did a bit of research and I was, you know, quite surprised, but there's 1.8 million borrowers in Canada who owe Canada student loans. That's just the federal component of it. Um, The average loan balance of federal student loans when individuals were leaving school, and this is as recent as 2019-2020, was about $13,500. And within about three years of people graduating from school, about 8% of people had defaulted on that debt, which is actually quite high when you compare it to credit cards or other types of, of debts. Um, you know, student loan does have a, a much higher default rate. Um, and if we look at, you know, what's the average student loan, including, um, you know, private student loans from various banks, provincial student loans, so in BC, obviously BC student loans, and then the federal component, the average balance is around 25000 So you can imagine um, someone starting off their professional life, finishing school, uh, having a debt of $25,000 that they know they've got to chisel away from. Uh, In terms of the number of people that come to see us who cite student loans as the main portion of their debt, it's about 13% of people. So about 88% of people said, uh, sorry, pardon me, that's the wrong number, about 55% of people said that credit cards were their uh, most significant financial financial challenge. But again, it's a much smaller rate, but still significant at 13% for student loans. Wow, that's an incredible number. Uh, I can't imagine starting out in your life of having completed school finally, I'm sure that's how it feels, and then to be saddled with that kind of debt. Well, and what's also the issue, Elena, sometimes, you know, if it was just the student loan, that might be okay, but quite often people have been forced to accumulate other debts as well, sometimes just to make ends meet or when they're not able to work during the school year. Um, So, you know, sometimes people are juggling some credit card debt, which might have a pretty high interest rate, you know, it could be about 20%. When you compare that with also a student loan with a big balance, but ideally a lower interest rate, you know, maybe around 3 or 4%, it can lead to a situation where there's just payments being asked that the person isn't earning enough income to make. That's wow. That's a huge. Now, is there anything else you wanted to mention about that combination, student loan and credit card debt before we move on? Well, I think just in terms of the numbers, it can be useful for someone to to hear an example. So, um, you know, if you've got a $10,000 student loan and an average rate around now is about 3.2%, your monthly payment is about $185. And you might think that sounds okay. But if you've also got some credit card debt of $10,000, the interest rate on that is about 19.9%. That minimum payment is about $265. Um, So now you're up around $450 a month in minimum payments. And the credit card one, probably 90, 95% of that payment each month is just going to interest. So it's often the combination of the student loans and then the non-student loan debt that put people in a very tough position. Wow. Now, before we go any further uh, to talk about strategies for folks to manage student debt repayments, I just wanted to throw in here, if you already know that you need some assistance, that you need to talk to somebody at Sands and Associates and get a handle on either figuring out next steps or is my situation as bad as it feels right now, I'm going to give you their website at sands-trustee.com and the phone number to call to set up that first appointment, one 800 Six one thirty thirty. 
So let's talk about some strategies, Blair, for people trying to manage their student debt repayments. Yeah, the, the first step, and this is with any type of debt situation that you're dealing with, is just to get organized. So put things in writing, start to take a look at your budget, list all of your debts, uh, consider if there's any grace period. So often there's you know at least six months after you graduate where you're not required to make payments, but you need to understand is interest still accruing or not, um, and then identify your payment due dates to make sure nothing surprises you. Uh, figure out how much your required minimum payments are each month, and then at that point you want to just take stock and say, okay, can I make those minimum payments? Is that going to fit into my budget? Um, If the answer is yes, um, then you want to figure out, well, what's your strategy for actually paying this debt down? Uh, Because quite often, minimum payments, especially on credit cards, they'll keep you in debt for quite some time. Um, So what you typically would want to do is to prioritize any other debts that you're carrying, rank them by interest rate highest to lowest, and anything extra in your budget you can pay beyond the minimum payments. You generally want to pay that to the highest interest rate debt first, because that's going to give you the best bang for your buck, save you the most interest later on. If you find you're not able to meet all those minimum obligations, there's a few different things that you can do. You know, one and a good place to start is to go to whoever's holding your student loans, whether it's Canada student loans, BC student loans, uh, or even a private lender, and see what options or programs they might have available to you. So oftentimes with Canada student loans, there's a repayment assistance plan. With BC student loans, there's student aid BC. Now, quite often, these won't be able to reduce the principal on your loan at all, but they might be able to give you a break on the interest or a holiday from payments or various things like that. So it's really important that you look and see what help is available to you directly from the lender. Um, But if you've exhausted those types of avenues, you can't make the minimum payments, um, the relief programs that are available to you just aren't going to solve your problem, then it might be the time to look at some more formal debt resolution options that can deal with student loans. And I just want to throw in the idea that your credit card is not is not one of those options. That's right. Yeah, you don't want to be just moving money around from one debt to another because typically you're spiraling higher and higher um, in interest rates and you're not actually getting further ahead. So a lot of people tend to do that. They call it you know, robbing Peter to pay Paul, using credit to pay credit, but it's never a show that has a happy ending, so to speak. Yeah. So in our last sort of segment in this particular piece that we're talking about, can you sort of boil, there's so much information I know, but can you boil down a little bit how a consumer proposal and bankruptcy work in relation to a student loan? Like how can somebody tackle this? Yeah, exactly, Elaine. And what I want to give is some really clear guidance that people can rely on here. And it all comes down to how long have you been out of school in relation to your student loans. So first off, when you come to see a trustee, we're going to take inventory of all of your debts. And we're going to figure out what's a private student loan versus what's a government student loan. And very clearly, a private student loan is just something that didn't come from the government. So it came from a bank or maybe an individual. Most common, you know, it's a student line of credit from one of the big banks. Those types of student loans, there's no waiting period at all. If you file either a personal bankruptcy or a consumer proposal. They're treated the exact same as every other debt. They can either be reduced partially in a proposal or reduced completely in a personal bankruptcy proceeding. So that could happen, you know, right away upon graduation um, if you really were in a hardship situation. Now, if it's a government student loan, there's a completely separate set of rules that apply. And the key timeline to keep in mind is seven years. So the government wants you to make a good faith effort to pay off your student loans as well as you can. And if you file 
file either a bankruptcy or a proposal before seven years has elapsed since you were last a student, the student loan will not be discharged in that proceeding. So you might have a ton of other debts, some private student loans and whatnot. That would all be gone at the end of a proposal or a bankruptcy. But if it's a government student loan and you haven't been out of school for at least seven years, that debt would still be carrying through at the end of the proceeding. So it's hugely important people be aware of that seven-year rule. Yeah, that's a significant one. And what if it's less than seven years? What, are there, is there any option at that point? There is. I'm so happy you asked that because there's an option if it's been five years but not quite seven years. You can, if you file a bankruptcy or a proposal, once that is finished, apply to the court to say you're still experiencing hardship. You still you won't be able to make the payments in the future. There's still a bunch of factors working against you. And the courts could still discharge the student loan after five years. And you know, even if the student loan is not going to get discharged, it still makes sense to discuss the situation with the trustee because at least while you're dealing with your other debts, the student loan is frozen. They can't can't collect from you anything like that. They can charge interest, but can't collect anything from you. So it can be a whole lot better for your situation just getting the help, even if it's less than seven years. And here's how you can do that. Sands and Associates, 1-800-661-3030 to talk to somebody about your situation. Or you can always check out the website and make an appointment through that as well. And that's sands-trustee.com. Talking about credit, do's and don'ts and tips from Blair. So whether your goal is to establish a good credit history, pay off debt, or in some cases, boost your credit score. There's a lot of aspects of credit history and ratings that folks just don't understand. Uh, and sometimes the things we think are right aren't the right outcome for us at the end. And that's why we've got Blair to talk about the credit mistakes not to make. That's where we're going to start. But first, Blair, can you start by giving some background information about credit scores, just in case somebody doesn't quite know what that means? Oh, certainly, Elaine. And I would say there's not a client that walks through the doors of Sands and Associates who doesn't eventually ask some very detailed questions, very good questions about their credit scores, their credit ratings. And it's something that a lot of folks are surprised to learn the facts um, and how much these ratings and scores can change in short periods of time. So just starting at the basics, there's two main credit bureaus in Canada. There's one called Equifax and another called TransUnion. And you've probably heard these names before because they often give press releases with, you know, new stats about delinquencies on debt. Um, and also they've been subject to data breaches. So you may have heard of that in the past where some personal information has been compromised. But these are private companies. Um, they store and share information they've collected from your Canadian creditors about how you use your credits. So each of them has a detailed record on just about every Canadian in Canada who has accessed the credit system at some time. So when you apply for or borrow funds for the first time, your credit report is created. So it's a summary of your credit history. So everything that you've done within the credit world, it starts with your first transaction. And in addition to personal information like your date of birth, your address, employment history, and so on, uh, your credit report might have information such as the credit you use and facts about the account, such as balances and payment habits. So what's your high balance this month? Did you pay on time? What's the history there? It's also going to reflect are there inquiries from lenders or others who've requested your credit report. So it can be an indication if someone's going all over town applying for credit six or seven times, all of those are going to show on the credit report and that can give a lender 
under some caution before they advance funds. Uh, and there can also be some remarks in there. You can put a consumer statement yourself. Um, you know, if you've been through a bankruptcy or a proposal and want to put a statement saying here were the circumstances, um, you know, it was a car accident or something, you know, outside of my control and I want everyone to know about that, um, you have the right to put that in your credit report. And then also some fraud alerts if you've been a victim of an identity theft or something along those lines. So quite a bit of information goes into your credit report. And what a lot of people are really focused on is the credit score. And this is a numerical, a three-digit number. It ranges from 300 to 900, with 300 being, um, you know, on the very lowest possible scale, very uncreditworthy, to 900 being, you know, exceptionally creditworthy, about the highest you could get. Uh, now, it's impossible to actually know this exact number. And some people are quite surprised. They say, well, I can go online and I can pay for my credit score. Well, yes, you can, but that's not your real credit score. That's just the credit bureaus basically selling you a number that they create, but each lender individually, so each bank, each credit card company, payday loan or whatever that does a credit report on you or credit check, they're going to calculate their own credit score. And it's a closely guarded secret about how they actually put those numbers together. So what you pay for online of your credit score, it should be indicatively correct, but in no means is it going to be your exact credit score. People are surprised to learn that. Oh, that is interesting. I didn't realize that either. Um, I still have this question. Why do people and consumers care about their credit history or what a credit bureau or bank scores them at? Like, when does that really come into play for someone? And that's a good question, Elena. And a lot of people, I think, care far too much about their credit score at every point in their life when it's really only important at certain points when you need to borrow funds, maybe for a mortgage or for a car loan. But a lot of people are focused on keeping perfect credit and sometimes at the expense of their overall financial health. Um, financial health. But a couple things where it's really important to be aware of your credit history and credit score is you want to spot signs of identity theft. So if you're not checking your credit report at least every year, you might not have any idea that someone's opened a bunch of accounts in your name, they're running up credit. Well, you might not be held accountable for that credit. Uh, if it goes delinquent, it could be when you're ready to buy the car or get the mortgage, suddenly there's all this stuff in your credit report you had no idea about because you've been a victim of identity theft. So you want to make sure, you know, obviously all the accounts on there are yours. Um, and a lot of the time why people want to have a strong credit score is because that's what a lender is going to look at when they're ready to borrow. A lender is going to look at the credit score and the history to decide if they're going to lend you money. And if they do, what rates and terms are they going to extend to you? So someone who has a much higher credit score uh, than, than lower uh, is obviously going to get better rates or get more access to credit than someone who's on the lower end of the scale because the creditor is going to think a high credit score means they've been good in the past. They're going to be good in the future and paying back all of the new borrowings. So it is important if you're going to take some action, if you're going to borrow some money, you need to pay attention to what your score is, just so you know what it is going into a negotiation. Does that make sense? That's exactly right. So, you know, if you have a goal that in, you know, three years from now, I'm going to have enough money saved uh, for a down payment with a mortgage, well, then make a plan that your credit score should be peaking around that time and start taking some steps now. Uh, if you know you've just, say, graduated school, uh, you know, you're 10, 15 years off of getting into the mortgage market, you don't need to pay a whole lot of attention to your credit score. You know, yes, pay your bills on time. That's just, you know, good hygiene to do for, from a financial perspective. Uh, but managing your credit score down to the letter, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Uh, 
Uh, you just really need to be careful you're not chasing a perfect credit score at every stage because your credit score can change dramatically in the matter of just a year or two. Literally, people can come out of bankruptcy proceedings, which is about the worst thing or toughest thing you can do to your credit, getting it essentially down closer to the 300 side. Uh, and then within two to three years, they can be getting mortgages approved, credit card offers with no risk premiums, nothing like that, if they've done the right thing. So it takes about two to three years to really change your credit dramatically. But even in a year or so, you can have some significant impacts on a credit score. I know that your website has some good information about uh, credit and how to pay attention to it. And I'm just going to give folks their, the, your website again. It's sands-trustee.com. And it's really just filled with good questions and answers on all aspects of debt, including credit, if it's something you'd like to check out before you take the next step. Um, how, how you use your credit and your personal spending habits make up a bulk of your credit history. We know that. Which has the biggest impact on your credit score? Yeah, there's some really good best practices people should keep in mind. So, you know, first off, uh, the longer you've had an account that's open, the better this is for your score. So you might have heard the advice, okay, if you're applying for credit, go and close some other accounts because it's going to look better if you don't have a whole lot of open credit. That's just completely wrong. Um, any history that you had with those accounts, two or three years, a great payment history, never missing a payment. Once you close that account, that history is gone. So having some old accounts that you continue to use, that can be important. And yes, you can transition to newer accounts, but I'd recommend you don't close the older ones until you've built up some good history with your newer accounts. You, know, you can remove the limits down to something very low on the old accounts, maybe not use them very much, but you do want to keep that history present there. Uh, you know, another best practice is to treat everything as important. So every debt that you have uh, has the ability to either help you on your credit report or to hurt you. And the small bills, something like a cell phone or an Internet plan, you might, you know, neglect that thing. Oh, it's the smallest bill. I'm going to pay it every couple of months or so. I don't mind the collection calls. But it's been said that more people get denied for mortgages due to unpaid cell phone bills than for any other factor having to do with credit. So be aware that a cell phone company, they know they're not going to hire a lawyer to chase you but they're going to be very quick to ding your credit if you're habitually missing payments. So make sure that you're treating all of the accounts as important. Uh, the last tip that I would give here is just to watch your balances. So it's very important that you keep your balances on your accounts less than 50%, and sometimes even less than 30% is a good idea. So that means if your credit card limit is 5000 try not to charge more than $2,500 on that in a month, because even if you pay it off, it still shows that you went above your credit, uh, you know, above the 50% target, and maybe your creditor will think, well, there could be a risk. They're using all this credit all the time. Uh, that's better than so sorry, that's worse than somebody who's only using part of their balances on a regular basis. Got it. And again, I just want to mention too, you know, we're, we give you a lot of information in these segments. Uh, check out the website for Sands & Associates. There's so much good information there. It's sands-trustee.com. And if you want to sit down with somebody and hash out your issue, just ask some really good questions in order to figure out your next step. 1-800-661-3030 for that consultation, as well as to find an office near you in British Columbia. You're listening to Dollars and Cents with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. Associates, helping you get out of debt. You've been listening to Dollars and Cents. See you next time. The proceeding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. 
Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think French fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.